Too loud. All right. I will, I will keep it in a lower decibel. Well, good morning. Happy Palm Sunday. Um, and I, I actually really appreciate Ken's joke um, intro because it's really in a lot of ways where we're going this morning. But um, we have just wrapped up a series on the uh, spiritual disciplines. And the whole point of that series, you know, we, we looked at a lot of different disciplines, slowing down and celebrating the things that God has done in our lives and meditating on scripture, allowing the Holy Spirit to really guide us through that rather than just trying to rush through it. We looked at prayer and the way that, um, you know, that confession can really open up that inner, that intimacy with God. We took a look at the way that serving other people, oftentimes in secret, so that our motivation won't get all wrapped up in recognition. And then last week, we looked at the ways that uh, even the trials in our lives, the difficulty that we encounter, can have a large part in developing who we are becoming. And the whole point of this was, and, and this is something we've said again and again, the whole point of this is not that we somehow climb a ladder or the, you know, the, the spiritual disciplines aren't rungs on a ladder to righteousness, as if we could somehow make ourselves holy in God's sight. We have just as much ability to make ourselves holy as we have to save ourselves, which is nil. It's God who makes us holy. It's God who sets us apart. It's God who saves us. So the point of the spiritual disciplines as we've been looking at is simply to kind of clear away the clutter so that we can encounter God in a more intimate transformational relationship. Does that make sense? I mean, that's hopefully, hopefully you guys have gotten that over the last six weeks because that's been the major, the major point. It's all about relationship. But one of the things that we're going to look at this morning is the fact that perhaps the, one of the most caustic things in any relationship is unmet expectations. I think about my son, my wife, the way that, um, you know, oftentimes when I get most frustrated with them, it's because I have some sort of unspoken expectation that they are not living up to, that they're not meeting. And at that point, I start getting frustrated. I start getting irritated. And oftentimes I get pretty downright angry. And they might not even be aware of that expectation. I might not even be aware of that expectation. But a lot of my anger is, is stemming from an unmet expectation. Because here's the difference between a desire and an expectation. I think we all have desires and relationships with people. We desire to see something. Maybe we even articulate our desire. We hope that it will happen. But when we take that next step to saying not, will you do this, but I demand that you do this. I expect that you will do this, oftentimes because we feel entitled to this thing being done for us. That's when we make the leap from a desire to an expectation. It's almost as if we take the fingers of our heart and when we're desiring something, we're asking for it. When we expect it, we curl the fingers of our heart around it and we say, you must do this for me. You must give me this thing. And we do this with our family. We do this with coworkers. We do this with friends and we do this with God. Here's the, the dangerous thing about expectations. Oftentimes expectations will paint a portrait or a picture of somebody, but that picture most often does not correspond with reality. There are discrepancies in it. And then what we're left with is a decision. Do we tear up this picture? Do we tear up our list of expectations and embrace the person in front of us? Or do we embrace the picture and tear up the person in front of us? 
And that's exactly what we see happening on Jesus' triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. So if you will, turn with me to John chapter 12. That's where we're going to kind of base our conversation out of this morning. As you're turning there, I want to give you a little bit of background. I mean, we talk about today being Palm Sunday, the first day in kind of this Easter week, which is, it's kind of crazy to me that it's already Easter next Sunday. That's just nuts. This year is absolutely flying by. But Palm Sunday was the beginning of the Passover celebration. And let me talk a little bit about that for a moment. There were three major feast days in the Jewish culture in which the Jews would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. The Passover feast was one of those. And the Passover was a celebration of the time in Israel's history when God redeemed them out of slavery in Egypt. He used 10 plagues. He used this guy named Moses to bring his people out of slavery. And so every year, the people would have a celebration in which they remembered the way that God had led them out and led them through the wilderness and ultimately into the promised land. So you've got thousands upon thousands of Jews from all over the area who have made this pilgrimage now into Jerusalem. Furthermore, these Jews in Jerusalem have been hearing about this rabbi, this teacher named Jesus, who's very different from all of the other rabbis because Jesus doesn't just read scripture. He doesn't just kind of talk and teach out of scripture as if it's something he's read. He speaks with authority, almost like he's the guy who wrote it. And he's more than just talk too, because this Jesus character has been healing people. He's been driving out demons. He's been feeding multitudes of people with just a little bit of food. And just before him making this triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Jesus has actually raised a guy named Lazarus from the dead. Word about this has gotten out and people are beginning to ask themselves the question, who is this guy? Could this be that Messiah, God's anointed redeemer that we've been waiting for? And so as we picked up the story here in John chapter 12, verse 12, that's what's going on. You've got a multitude of of, uh, Jews who have been hearing about Jesus and now is their opportunity to see him in the flesh. And they are coming to him kind of going, who is he? Is this our Messiah, God's anointed king? Verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come to the festival, Passover, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it as it is written. Don't be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. Now, at first, his disciples didn't understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified, did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now, the crowd that was with him when he raised Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word about what he had done. And many people, because they had heard that he had performed the sign, went out to meet him. Now, what I find so fascinating, and, you know, Ken really pointed it out, is the same people that go out with palm branches in their hands and singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, are the same people that nearly five days later will be shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And, and I'm left asking the question, why on earth? How on earth did that change happen in five short days? How did they go from singing, save us, Hosanna, to crucify him? 
the reality is I, the, the point that we're going to see as we start delving into this is they had an expectation of who Jesus was. They had an expectation of the type of Messiah that Jesus would be. And on Sunday, they thought that he fit that picture pretty well. By Friday, they've, they've come to the conclusion that he, is, he does not fit their picture. And so they're rejecting him as their king. They're rejecting him as their Messiah. We're going to understand this passage a little bit more. I'd like to take about a five or ten minute detour into history so we can help understand this. You guys ready? So put your history caps on. Here's the thing. The term Messiah is a word that we find all throughout Scripture. And in, in, that's the Hebrew word, Messiah. In Greek, anybody know what that word is? Christ. It's not, a, it's not a last name of Jesus. It is his title. And it means anointed one. Here's what's going on. If you read throughout the Old Testament, whenever God set apart somebody, maybe it was a um, prophet to speak the words of God, or maybe it was the high priest to, to minister in the temple and to be God's intermediary between the people, or maybe it was the king. Remember King David. When, Samuel, when God said, this is my one, this is the guy I'm choosing to be a king, he has Samuel, the high priest at that point, or the, one of his prophets, pour oil over his head. Do you remember that, that picture? The pouring the oil over the head was a tangible symbol representing the pouring of the Holy Spirit onto this person, the anointing of the Holy Spirit to empower that person to lead his people. Hence, when we say Messiah, anointed one that's what it means this individual is anointed by the holy spirit to be god's chosen leader and a lot of the prophets continued to prophesy about the day when god would use somebody raise somebody up to redeem his people because if you spent any time in the old testament any time in the prophets you see that there's a lot of conversation about listen if you turn your back on god then there are going to be some negative repercussions. God will allow other nations to overrun your borders. God will scatter you from the land that you have been promised. It's not going to go well. But even in the midst of those dire warnings, there's hope. God will not completely turn his back on us, ever. Even when we're unfaithful, he will never cease to be faithful to us. And at some point, God will raise up another ruler to be our king and to redeem God's people out of slavery, out of oppression. And he will reestablish God's kingdom here on earth. That was the promise found all throughout the Old Testament of the Messiah. Well, about 160 years before Jesus' birth, in about 160 AD, Israel was once again under an oppressive slavery like they had been when they were in Egypt. They had been overrun by the Greeks. And as time went on, they had a, a guy named, he was a Syrian king named um, Antiochus Epiphanes IV. This guy was a bad dude because his goal was to completely and utterly snuff out Jewish faith and replace it with more of a Greek or Hellenistic faith. A faith that said rather than Yahweh, God being the center of the universe, man is the center of the universe. He went so far as to, as to outlaw the reading of the Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. 
He deposed the high priest that worked in the temple as God's intermediary. He took him out of his position and placed his own pagan high priest on that, in that role. He outlawed the sacrificing to Yahweh, the God of Israel. And instead, this high priest began to sacrifice pigs, which were an unclean animal, to Zeus on the altar in the temple. Totally not kosher. And some of the Jews went along with it in a lot of ways because they were more political Jews. They, they were Jews by birth than they were by faith. And so they said, you know what? Whoever the ruling party is, we're going to go with them because at least it'll keep our skin on our backs. Yeah, there are some that are still, you know, whatever, political. A lot of us, our faith is simply something that's been handed down to us by our forefathers, but we don't give a lot of thought to it. But there were some there were some Jews who would not put up with this any longer. It was simply too far to go to be sacrificing pigs in the temple to a pagan God. And so they, led by a group of five brothers called the Maccabees, one of them being this guy, Judas Maccabeus, who was the leader of this group, decided it was time to take matters into their own hands. And they kind of whipped the people up into a frenzy and they went and took back the temple. They deposed this fraudulent high priest, they began to clean the temple out, cleanse it, and rededicate it to Yahweh. They ultimately took back Jerusalem and they took back the temple for God and they said, we will no longer sit idly by while Yahweh is being mocked. That he was a precursor of this Messiah that they were waiting for. He wasn't the full Messiah and the Jews agreed that he's not the Messiah because he did not reestablish God's kingdom in all earth. He didn't reestablish Israel to be the preeminent nation in the world as they thought the Messiah was going to do. But Judas Maccabeus was a precursor of the Messiah. And they began to, um, well, one of the songs, and, and I won't go into the reason why this psalm was one that became important, but you'll see very quickly kind of the messianic overtones it has. Turn with me to Psalm 118. Okay, here's what's going on. Because the people, one of the other feast days for Israel is called um, the, the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot. It's a time where they would build tabernacles out of palm branches and they would, it, it was a reminder of the time that they spent in the wilderness, the time where God led them through the wilderness and they didn't have homes of, of wood to live in, but they had these kind of uh, thatch roofs over their heads and stuff like that. It was supposed to be a reminder of God's provision in the harvest and it ended at the end of the harvest, but because the temple was in the hands of pagans, it was postponed until they were able to clean out the temple. So it was Christmas time now when the Maccabees had kind of now cleansed out the temple. Of course, they didn't call it Christmas at the time, by the way. Just, but it was now winter time. They finally cleansed the temple and it's like, let's do the Feast of Sukkot. And this was one of the Psalms of the Feast of Tabernacles. We read this earlier, Psalm 118. I'm not going to read all of it, but I'm going to read a part of it. Psalm 118, verse 25. Lord, save us. In your notes, you notice I underline that. Do you know what that word, how that word is pronounced? Hosanna or Hosanna. Lord, save us. Hosanna. 
this, this originally was a cry of help, God save us, but it, because of what the Maccabees had done, because God proved that he was capable of saving them, it became a declaration of rebellion. And it, God has saved us. So it was a victory cry as well as a cry for help. Lord, save us. Hosanna. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. By the way, this is the thing that was cried out over Jesus as he's walking into Jerusalem or as he's riding this donkey. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God and he has made his light shine on us with boughs in hand. And you know, you know what boughs are? They're, they're palm branches. They are branches off of trees. So if branches or boughs in hand... Join in the festal uh, procession up to the horns of the altar. We are going to worship. You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. This psalm came to have tremendous messianic overtones because in many ways this is the thing that Judas Maccabeus had done. In the Maccabean Revolution, he had thrown off the oppressive yoke of a pagan nation. He had reestablished the worship of Yahweh in the midst of the people. That's what their Messiah was going to do. And now suddenly we have Jesus, this rabbi, who's so unlike all of the other rabbis. He, he teaches with authority. He heals. He raises the dead to life. And he is making his way into Jerusalem, not just at any time of the year. He's making his way into Jerusalem at Passover. The time set apart to celebrate when God had already redeemed his people out of slavery. And now they look at their own situation. They're enslaved to Rome. And here comes Jesus. Here's our Messiah. Here is our King. And so let's celebrate him. Let's shout Hosanna, Hosanna. It almost becomes like a rebel cry, doesn't it? Hosanna is the rebel cry and they start waving palm branches almost like their banners, you know, their, their, their flag of revolution. Hosanna, here you come. Here we go. Here, here comes another, you know, somebody cut from the same cloth as Judas Maccabeus. Here is our strong leader who will now rise up and wipe out our enemy. Here's our Messiah that we've been waiting for. And so they start crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. They had huge expectations of who Jesus was going to be. Huge expectations that he was going to be just like Judas Maccabeus, but he was going to go so much farther. He was not only going to reestablish Jerusalem, he was going to reestablish the nation of Israel as the preeminent nation, throwing off the yoke of Rome. And you know, Jesus was well aware of their expectations. You don't need to turn there. It's in your notes and it's going to be on the screen. But in, in Zechariah 9, if you want to, you can turn there. It's the second to last of the prophets before you get to the New Testament. Jesus does something really interesting as he's about to make his way into Jerusalem. Up to this point, over the three years of his ministry, he... He's walked everywhere he's gone. But at this point, he does something really interesting. And we see in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel, he actually tells his disciples, go into that town there and you're going to find a colt, like a, a donkey, a young donkey that's never been ridden on. Bring it to me because I'm going to ride 
this donkey from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. Now, I've, I've stood on the Mount of Olives and I've looked into Jerusalem. We're talking about a couple hundred yards here. This isn't a long distance. But Jesus chose to ride a donkey from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem on this particular day, the first time we ever hear about him riding something. And there's a reason why. He is pointing specifically to this passage in Zechariah 9 that has gigantic messianic overtones, points to the kind of Messiah he's going to be. And he's trying to get the point across, listen, your expectations of what I'm going to be don't match with reality. Let me point to this passage for you so that you can get it, that I come in peace. Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is what we see even quoted in the passage that we read earlier out of John. If a king was going to go to war, he would ride a war horse. But in times of peace, in times where a king was not about to enter into battle, he would ride a donkey. Those was the choice. And the, the symbolism of it is that this Messiah is ushering in a season of peace for all the nations, not just for Israel. And he's trying to point that out because look, keep reading. In verse 10, it says, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He, this Messiah, will proclaim peace to all the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from river to to the ends of the earth. Jesus is trying to get the point across, I am your Messiah, but I'm not the Messiah that you expect. You think that I'm coming in the form of a Judas Maccabeus, somebody who will stand up, pull out a sword, and lead you into battle. You think that I'm bringing peace? The people got that he was going to try to usher in peace, but they thought he was going to do it at the edge of the sword by force because they thought that the enemy that this Messiah was coming to overthrow was Rome, but they're wrong. You see, Rome was a momentary oppressor. It was one of many oppressors that Israel had been under. Who Jesus, the enemy that Jesus was coming to deal with, which is a much greater, much more universal enemy, sin. Sin that had shackled God's people with chains of of shame and guilt and ultimately had separated them from an intimate relationship with their Father in heaven. That is the enemy that Jesus came to deal with. That is the enemy that he came to overthrow and to usher in peace and to reestablish God's kingdom on earth. Not just the nation of Israel. They had such a small picture of him being a political messiah rather than being the spiritual Messiah that he truly was, that was going to be a universal Messiah for all nations. They kept thinking only about themselves and forgetting that we're all made in God's image. And Jesus is trying to point out, listen, you expect a conquering king, I'm coming as a suffering servant. You expect me to go cleanse out the palace, I'm coming to clean out the temple from the ways you're misunderstanding and misusing it. You expect me to go to war with Rome. I'm going to war with sin and death and I'm going to do so not by killing Roman centurions. I'm going to do so by submitting myself to the hands of Roman centurions 
being punished and beaten for you and taking upon myself the sin that is due to you and ultimately paying that bill that every single child of God has racked up over the course of his life, paying that with my own blood. Jesus was the Messiah, but he wasn't the Messiah they expected. And so on that day, as they are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the King of Israel. A different Messiah entered in and the people had a choice. And over the next five days, as they got a better look at him and as they began to see the way he interacted with the Pharisees, as they began to hear what he had to say, they had a choice. Our expectations of the Messiah or this man, Jesus of Nazareth. And most of the Jews chose to embrace their picture of the Messiah rather than to embrace their Messiah. And they missed it. And so five days later, the same people who were screaming, Hosanna, are screaming, crucify him. Which raises the question for us, well, what does this have to do with us some 2,000 years later? Right? That's always the question that we want to ask. I would suspect that every single one of us in here today in one form or another has brought expectations into our relationship with God. I don't doubt in a lot of ways it's, it's due to teaching that you've heard. Some of us have entered into the relationship with the mindset that if I give my heart to Jesus, he will fix my life. And what do we think that will mean? He'll make all of the brokenness simply disappear, perhaps. And yet then we start looking at our lives and we see that we still feel deep pain. We are still shackled by chronic sin. We still feel loneliness and shame and guilt kind of lurking around the edges, just waiting for us to drop our defenses. It's still there. Healthy children. The, um, you know health for ourselves, the career that is satisfying and fulfilling. Maybe we came into our relationship with him thinking that. And we waited patiently. But days and weeks turned into years and decades. And we still find ourselves waiting. And our hope turns to disappointment, metastasizes into frustration, even anger. Because our expectations have not been met. Jesus has not held up his end of the bargain. And the message of Palm Sunday is that we might recognize Jesus for who he really is and yet still miss out on relationship with him because of our expectations. I will be the first to remind all of us, and this includes myself, that God does not promise us easy, comfortable, pain-free lives. Jesus certainly didn't have a pain-free life. And he warned his disciples that in this world, you're going to have trouble, but you can take heart in the fact that I have overcome the world and through my sacrifice on the cross, Brokenness, addiction, loneliness, anger, death will not get the last word. That's the message of the cross.
because the reality is that I think God cares a whole lot more about our character than he does our comfort. And oftentimes it's our character is formed in those seasons in the wilderness, those seasons where we're not comfortable, where we have to be dependent. I want to I close this morning by sharing with you um, a journal entry that I that I wrote when I was in the middle of a wilderness season. This is something I shared with you a little while ago. But I, I feel like this was one of those times in my own journey with God where I came face to face with some of my expectations. You see, I had left a, a very comfortable job at a church that I really loved, trusting that God was leading me out. And as time progressed and as days became weeks and weeks became months, I started kind of in the back of my mind holding on to the expectation that the only reason God would have brought me out of that comfortable, safe pasture was to lead me to some place that was even more comfortable, even more safe, even more satisfying than where I'd been. That was the only reason that I could think of for why he would allow me to experience discomfort. And allow my family to be brought through that. And in the midst of a journaling session where I was praying, you know, God just kind of speak to me. He, he pretty much kind of smacked me upside the head with a plank of truth in which he asked me, what if the only thing, what if the only purpose of this is a more intimate relationship with me? Would you still follow me? What if there is no greener pasture on the other side, would you still choose to follow me? And so I'm going to close with this. This is written about two and a half years ago. What if this broken road isn't intended to lead me to a greener pasture? What if the purpose of this path is to draw me into a deeper, more intimate relationship with my shepherd? Through this whole journey, I've held on to the belief that God has called me out of a comfortable place in order to prepare me for something better. And so I followed him with confidence that the more painful the journey, the greater the payoff in the end. And this whole time I've interpreted payoff to mean a better, more comfortable place to rest on the other side of this valley. And yet comfort probably isn't God's ultimate intention. From everything I've read about him in scripture, those he called to follow him weren't usually rewarded with a lucrative, comfortable position. In fact, most of them continued to suffer throughout their lives, sacrificing jobs, family support, health, even their lives in the pursuit of their relationship with the Lord. One where they learned to trust his lead and his pace, no matter how cultural it may be. So I need to ask the question, if the only fruit of this season if the only fruit that this season produces is a more intimate relationship with the Lord, one where I learn to trust his lead and his pace, no matter how countercultural it may be, am I willing to follow him regardless of the cost? And while I don't like the thought, the only answer I can give is, of course, where else would I go? He's the only source of life and true purpose. And so Jesus, lead on. My family will follow wherever you want to take us and whatever pace you want to set is your prerogative. We choose to trust you. <laughs> Just please be gentle. <clears throat> We're faced this morning with a choice. 
I think each and every one of us has a, a set of expectations that we've brought into the relationship with God. We have expectations for what kind of payback we should get for our faithfulness. Es- expectations of, of the kind of life that we want. And the message this morning is that we have a choice between our expectations and intimacy with our God. We can embrace our expectations and say, basically, Jesus, I will follow you so long as you meet my demands. But the moment that you start not fulfilling your end of the bargain, I'm going to hesitate and I'm going to wait until you finally give me what I demand and then I'll follow you. And that's one option. It's an option I think some of us have chosen and are choosing. The other option is simply to bring that list of expectations to the foot of the cross, recognizing that we've got them, and lay them down and say, wherever you lead, I'll follow you. Because where else can I go? You're the only source of life and true purpose. Ultimately, the choice is yours. But this morning, as we go now into a time of worship, and respond to this, I would ask you to simply consider what are the expectations that may be hindering you from being fully submitted? What are the expectations that are keeping you from being able to fully worship and say, whoever you are, however you choose to reveal yourself to me, however you want to lead in whatever way you want to save us, Jesus, Hosanna, save us. Have your way in my life. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the reminder of Palm Sunday. That you don't always fit the picture that we have in our minds. You don't always meet our expectations. But that's because you're God and you know better than we do what we need. The Jews thought that the greatest enemy that they faced was Rome. But they were just one of of a long line of oppressors. And you came to deal with a much greater, much more universal oppressor. And I thank you that you were willing to sacrifice yourself and to take the humble position of a sacrificial servant rather than position of of a victorious, conquering king. And so we give you our lives. We lay down our expectations and say, your will be done. Jesus, in your holy name, amen.